Let's stand together and let's turn in our Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Sunday morning we're studying the book of 1 Corinthians together in a series entitled Christian Living in a Pagan World. And if you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now. Just wave to them and they'll get a Bible into your hands so you can hear the Word of God, but also read along. Very important to read it as well. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, the Word of the Lord. For as the body is one... And has many members, but all members of that one body, being many, are one body. So also is Christ. For by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and all have been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, it's a kind of a gross thought, then where would be the hearing? And if the whole body were hearing or an ear, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, then where would the body be? But now, indeed, there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for one another. And if the body suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. Wow. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for this passage. And thank you so much that for this instruction that you gave to those Christians who are wanting to live for you and serve you and that very, very pagan culture in Corinth, and we see the same culture all around us, Lord, and we bring the same desire to live for you and walk with you and glorify you and be different in a way that looks like Christ, and we pray that you'd use these verses to teach us a little bit more about that and how to live that life, and we ask for that work of your Holy Spirit through your word to our heart, our mind, to our spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Every Christian is gifted by the Holy Spirit, the Bible teaches, with some gift of God's choosing. And each of us, the Bible teaches, are gifted in this way 
for a couple of purposes. Number one, in order to bring glory to God. So that in the exercise of this gift that God gives to us, the whole world will recognize in looking at our lives that that is not a life that looks like other lives that are being fashioned by the world around us. That life is being fashioned by something else, by someone else. That life is a part of a different kingdom. There's something supernatural about that life. And that gift of the Holy Spirit within our life adds that supernatural to our life that where our lives in the eyes of people defy explanation in terms of who and what we are, you know, just humanly speaking or what we are outwardly. A second reason that God gives us gifts is for the profit of other people and principally for the profit of other Christians, but not exclusively to that. And God wants us to know that as we seek the Lord, And each one of us as a Christian realizes, God has a calling on my life. There's something that he wants to do through my life in human history. And he has given me a specific gift or even more than one gift into my life in order to accomplish that calling. And that's true about every Christian. And everyone that sits in this room and you're a Christian, you say, I know nothing about God's calling upon my life. I know nothing about his gift in my life. This interests me. It fascinates me, but nobody's told me about this before. God wants you to have the confidence that if you desire to operate in those things, to know those things, to live that kind of a life, God is going to reveal his call to you, reveal his gifts to you, and he's going to get you into the middle of all of that, which is very exciting. There are hundreds of men and women in this room here this morning and in our church and uncountable millions of people in the world today, Christians, who have, in the course of drawing close to God, learned what his call is upon their life, what gifts God has given to them, and they're operating in those gifts. And God wants you to be confident of that fact related to your life as well. He will get you there if we desire earnestly the gifts that he has for our life. Now, this passage of Scripture that we're looking at here, it informs us that as Christians, we are the body of Christ. And he repeats that phrase. He uses this imagery of likening us as Christians, Christians in this church, Christians all around the world, that we constitute a body. So he talks about one body in verse 12, one body in verse 13. And then he bluntly declares it in verse 27, now you are the body of Christ. You stop and you think about that. It's a fascinating thing to realize that as Christians, we are the body of Christ. And we have to be careful Not to limit that phrase, the body of Christ, to just being a theological term. We say, all right, the body of Christ is synonymous with being a Christian and speaks of all Christians all around the world. They are the body of Christ. And we say, all right, it's just a theological term. It is a theological term, and it's a, and it's a theological phrase, but it's intended to really communicate something very, very powerfully to us and very, very wonderful to us. When Jesus was born into this world, it's called his incarnation, 
when he lived his life for 33 and a half years in this world and when he uh, fulfilled his three and a half year public ministry, he operated with a body. Jesus had a body. And when Jesus right now, as he is currently up in heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father, he has a body. You remember after his resurrection, he ate bread, he ate fish. He wasn't a phantom, he wasn't a spirit. He had and he has a body. During Jesus' public ministry, he taught people and he spoke to people. Sometimes he taught people and crowds that numbered multiplied thousands. At other times, he used his mouth, he used the capacity of speech, he used his body to speak to people individually, one-on-one, as he did with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, as he did with a woman at the well in uh, John chapter 4. And the Gospels are filled with examples of this. He preached the Gospel through a body, The first words that came out of his mouth when he began his public ministry was, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, informing the world and us in this room that there is a different kingdom than the kingdom we see operating out in the world today. And if you want to escape that kingdom and all of the misery and all of the mess of it and the bondage of it, and you want to come into another kingdom, then you need to repent and turn from that. And there's access now uh, into this new kingdom, the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus. And so he preached the gospel by use of a body. He listened to people continually with his body. He watched people continually by virtue of his body. He saw people. He used his hands to touch people, to heal people, to cast out demons, the use of his body. He used his body to perform miracles. He used his body to pray. On and on and on we could go about how Jesus used his body. Do you realize that in Jesus' incarnation and the life that he lived, he never did anything of his own will? He said, I do only those things that the Father tells me to do. He was submitted to the will of the Father. He used his body for the will of the Father. Everything that Jesus did, the life that he lived, he lived it in the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that is within us. Now, Jesus is different than us in the sense that he is the Son of God in a way that we are not and never will be. He is divine, and we are not and never will be. But he had a body, and he used a body to express the will of the Father in the world that he was born into, and he did so in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as the body of Christ, speaking about um, Christians speaking about um, the, you know, as we read about this uh, Jesus and the, the body of Christ, we're to realize that the Holy Spirit wants to do all those things that he did in and through Jesus 2,000 years ago. He wants to manifest that same life to the world just as greatly, but he wants to use us in order to 
uh, accomplish that. And so he wants to live the life of Christ through us, including the manifestation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, as the body of Christ as Christians, and that's speaking about Christians sometimes in a local church and also of all Christians in the whole wide world, we are now the instruments through whom the Holy Spirit reveals himself, through whom the Holy Spirit expresses himself and demonstrates all of this to the world, the life of Christ. And and we do so as we discover his calling upon our lives and we allow his gifts to operate through us. The Christian life is amazing to wake up in the morning and to realize I'm a part of the body of Christ. I am indwelt by the same Holy Spirit that indwelt Christ. And he has supernatural purposes for my life. And I don't know what he's going to do today. I don't know what he's going to make of my life today, except I know he's going to make much of it today, whether I see that or I don't see that. When the disciples 2,000 years ago woke up on any given day with Jesus to begin the day, they had no idea what a day might hold. I mean, from one day it would be this to this. I mean, it was wild, the most exciting life a person can live. And it's intended to not be something that's just on these pages of Scripture that are in this certain section of the Bible, and there's this 2,000-year gap between us and that, and, and we don't expect great things to happen through our lives by the Holy Spirit, but to realize that what he did through Christ in the use of that body, in speaking, in touching, in feeling, in healing, in ministering, in listening, all of these things, we are now the vehicle that he uses in order to accomplish that in the world. Now, you notice that Paul's analogy between a physical body and the body of Christ that, that he brings out famously in this passage. And he declares of a physical body that a physical body is one. We all bear witness to that today. You came into this room as one body in your physical body. You didn't come in in parts. Uh, a section of you came in and five minutes later another part of you came in and Ten minutes later, another part of you came in. The body doesn't operate that way. A body is one, but the body is made up of many members or many parts. It's made up of arms and legs and feet and hands and eyes and ears and mouth and liver and kidneys and lungs and so forth. But though there are many members... They all work together, Paul says, to function as a body. And all of this, he says, is true of the body of Christ as as well. We are one body, but we are made up of many members, many parts, many people that are doing what the Holy Spirit has called them and gifted them to do. And so what keeps us unified, what directs us, what keeps us functioning in coordination with one another, and what does that is the person of the Holy Spirit. And in a local church like this and all over the world, every Christian who is 
operating in, they understand God's call for their life, they're being obedient in that calling, the exercise of those gifts. Every Christian around the world is working in coordination with every other Christian who is doing uh, the same thing. As we're led and we're directed by the Holy Spirit, because, Paul says, we share one great experience together, verse 12, he describes it as being baptized into one spirit. In verse 13, he describes it as being made to drink into one spirit. And each of those phrases refers to our being saved. And so salvation through faith in Jesus, it is the common unifying experience of all Christians all around the world, whether they are Jews or Gentiles or bond or free or whatever kind of hyphen you want to add to it. And that's why when you run into Christians somewhere else in town or you go to the other side of the world maybe on business or a mission trip and you come into contact with Christians, there is an instant camaraderie. There is a sense uh, instantly a sense of connection that is supernatural. Sometimes you go on the other side of the world, maybe on business or something, and you fly into Denmark or you fly into Germany or whatever, and you say, you look in the paper and say, I want to find a church here that I can go to, and you go to it, and all they do is speak and sing in Danish. And yet there you are in the midst of it, and you feel a connection with these people, You're, you are enjoying what, even though things can't be communicated, each of you are enjoying a fellowship with one another because there's a realization that we are connected by the Holy Spirit. Different members in a different part of the world, and yet we're all one. We're all united by the Holy Spirit. And... Uh, and the reason that we feel that connection is because we really are connected and we're connected because we have the very same living Holy Spirit at work in each of our lives by virtue of being a Christian. Now, in this passage, Paul goes on to address two very damaging attitudes that had come to mark many of the Christians in the church at uh, Corinth pertaining to spiritual gifts. And those, these two damaging attitudes are uh, existent today uh, among Christians and maybe even existent in some of our lives individually here today, though maybe only the Lord and us knows about it. Some Christians in, at Corinth were operating in the realm of their spiritual gifts out of a sense of inferiority. And others were operating in their calling and in their gifting out of an attitude or an air of superiority. Now, in verses 15 through 20, I want to first take a look uh, for a moment or two at those Christians who are operating out of a sense of inferiority due to God's gifting and calling upon their lives. There were Christians in that church who, when they looked at their gift... When they looked at their calling, when they looked at their place in the body of Christ and within the church, they felt that their gift was insignificant in comparison to others. What I'm doing is no big deal. It doesn't matter. 
If I did it or I didn't do it, it wouldn't matter. It makes no difference in how the church functions or how it operates and certainly makes no difference in how health, healthy the worldwide body of Christ uh, is. And so they have that sense of insignificance concerning their gifting and their calling. And what they felt is perfectly encapsulated by the Apostle Paul in the phrase that's repeated in verse 15 and again in verse 16, and it is the phrase, because I am not. It is the Christian who is dominated by, even disabled by, a sense of insignificance. I am not needed. Nobody needs me, not even in the body of Christ. It encapsulates the kind of Christian who looks at their calling and their gifting and they're discontented with it, or they are envious of others who have a different gift and a different calling from God. Now, some of this was understandable in the church at Corinth because they emphasized two spiritual gifts way out of proportion to all of the other spiritual gifts. They super-emphasized the gift of prophecy, and they super, super emphasized the gift of uh, tongues. And uh, so if you, you know, had some other gifting than those giftings in that particular church body, those were so emphasized, you automatically felt insignificant or you automatically felt like I'm a second-class a spiritual citizen, God has just doomed me into nothingness because I don't have these other gifts. Now, Paul likens this sense of inferiority or uh, insignificance. He likens it to a foot uh, longing to be a hand in a physical body in verse 15. So clearly, I don't know about your feet, well, I know this much about your feet, but clearly the foot serves a humbler capacity in life than the hand. Its work is hardly noticed. I take my feet for granted every single day. Most people do. And a foot is deemed insignificant in comparison to the hand. I mean, the hand, we wake up in the morning... We slip these feet into shoes and we put socks and we hide them away and they're in the hot, humid environment, all of that, and, and that's their portion in the body of Christ. The hands are the comparative star of the show every day compared to a foot. Hi, look at I'm talking with my hands. They're out in the open and moving and the whole thing. You can, hi, hi, you know, you can do stuff. You can't do that with a foot. You can do things with the right shadows, hands. I mean, they're really something. And the foot looks and says, man, I, if I'm not a hand, I'm nothing. What in the world am I doing here? Completely in, insignificant. The hand's able to grab and able to hold and caress. It's able to turn the pages in a book. It's able to take a comb. It's able to uh, and do something with it. It's able to break an egg. It's able to reach into my pocket right now and pull my keys out. Try and do that with your foot, not during the service. (laughs) 
you go home and try and do that. It's impossible. The hand, I mean, what it, what it's able to do, comparatively speaking. And so someone might feel this way in a ministry environment, in a church like Corinth, that if they had the gift of helps or mercy or the gift of administration, these kind of behind-the-scenes gifts, as opposed to having the gifts of teaching or the gifts of, of prophecy, you know. Paul further illustrates this sense of its insignificance by contrasting the ear and the eye in verse 16, making the same point. But I want you to notice something very important here, that Paul has an answer here for the Christian who has that kind of an attitude toward what God has called them to and what God has gifted them for. He says, first of all, in verse 17, if the whole body speaks to the people that feel inferior and off, that's you in the room today. Oh, I'm nothing. It doesn't matter. My life is insignificant. It's no big deal. Nobody notices me. Here's Paul's answer to you. In verse 17, he said, if the whole body were an eye, then how would it hear? If the whole body were an ear, then by what means would it be able to smell? And the translation of that is, you can't have a body without every part taking its place and doing its job. It wouldn't be a body. It would just be a sad, pathetic monstrosity. If everybody in a church and in the body of Christ says, wow, these are the hip gifts, these are the gifts that everybody is saying everybody ought to have. These are the gifts that are the most important and the most significant. And then we all endeavor to have that calling and operating in that gifting that we become one-dimensional. We just become like a big eye. So you imagine a, a gigantic round eye sitting in a chair right there. It would be a fabulous eye, just the size of that thing. But without legs, without the body, how did it even get in here? And why is it even here? It doesn't even have any ears to hear what's going on, has no mouth to worship the Lord. And so it's just this odd, crazy thing without the rest of the body and without all of it being in proportion. It's only as the hands and the feet and the arms and the legs and the heart and the liver and the lungs, they all take their place, that you have a body. And the point is, that Paul is making, is that every part of the body is needed. And in the same way, there are no insignificant or unnecessary callings of God upon any Christian's life, nor are there unnecessary uh, giftings. It just, it just isn't true. And Paul is saying that whatever gifting we have or however we might esteem it or uh, uh, however the world might be assessing it or even Christians, how they view that gift, that the Lord knows what he has called us and gifted us to be and that that gift and that calling in the words of verse 22 is necessary. And I like that word in verse, also in verse 22, that word seem. And then that little two words in verse 22, we think, this is what we think about ourselves. 
about certain gifts and callings within the body of Christ. That's nothing, but this is really something. We think it, but God never thinks it because he never ever sees it uh, that way. The second thing that Paul would say to this kind of a Christian in verse 18 is that God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. The translation of that is basically this. Our gift and our calling within the body of Christ has been perfectly and wisely chosen for us by God. And if he has chosen that calling for us and chosen to give us the gifts that he's given us, there is no other calling, no other scenario, no other gifting that we would choose for ourselves that can be better than what he has chosen for us. So we have to throw off everything about how the world sees things, how even Christians see things, how even we think of certain gifts and certain callings. And in everybody, and certainly related uh, to our own uh, lives, I think how wonderful it is to realize that we are serving the Lord in the body of Christ in an place that has been hand-chosen for us by God. There is a communion that occurs between us and God. There is a satisfaction. There is a wonder that happens in that place that will never happen anywhere else. If I try to self-exalt myself out of or choose something other than what God has chosen for how he wants me to spend my life, the calling, the gifting, it'll always be inferior and it will, it will be, we'll lose something priceless, that sense of I am doing exactly what God has called me to do. And that's something, you, you can't buy that with money, that, what that feels like. Uh, in, in our lives. Now, someone might think, well, it could be better in my life if only uh, I could have the gift and the calling of so-and-so, but it wouldn't be. And the reason it wouldn't be is because you'd have no hope of success in that area because God anoints us for what he's called us to do. He doesn't anoint us for what we plug ourselves into. So, yes, I could be discontent with what God has called me to do, try and self-promote myself into something else, but I won't be, God will not allow me to be successful or fruitful in that realm because he's chosen for me to be in a place that he knows is necessary, and I've left the necessary place out of some dream or motivation that I have. And so he's got to get me back into there, and he knows I won't go back into that place if he blesses me and anoints me in this this other place. So there's no hope of being successful in any place other than where he has called me and gifted me. And in essence, what Paul is saying to this particular kind of Christian, even in the room today there might be some, and basically Paul says, listen, if it pleases God, then let it please you. And the fact of the matter is, is that ultimately each of us will be rewarded by God, not based upon our calling or not based upon our gifting, but will be based upon our faithfulness to his calling upon our lives. God is not going to hold us responsible for a calling that he never gave us. 
He can hold us responsible for the calling that he has upon our lives. And the reward for faithfulness to our calling is the same whether that calling is to being a prophet or a pastor or a teacher or a worker of miracles or whether the gift is the gift of helps or mercy or administration or ushering or leading a home fellowship or being a deacon or whatever it might be. Jesus told a parable in this vein called the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 24. And he told a story about a man, a wealthy man, who had three servants, and he gave each one of them a number of talents. And the talent, we think of talent immediately is... And the Bible is talking about a sum of money. So he gave to one, he gave five talents. To another, he gave two talents. To another, he gave one talent. And... Uh, And as he gave that to them, uh, though the guy with the five talents, he had uh, much more responsibility entrusted to him than the servant with the two talents or the one talent. And yet when all of them come before their Lord one day, and it's a picture of us standing before God one day, uh, each one, the man with the five and the man with the two talents, they were equally faithful in what God had called them to, and so their reward was identical. It was identical. The, the, the reward is the same for being faithful in whatever the calling is. There was a one of the men, given the one talent, he's suffering from the affliction that we're talking about right here. One talent. One talent. He got five talents and he got two talents and I got one talent. You're going to give me one talent? What's the big deal about one talent? What can a guy do with one talent? How significant is one talent? What does it matter if I put one talent into circulation? So he put it in a napkin and he buried it. And Jesus had some pretty harsh words to say about that kind of a servant. And that's the danger that a lot of people in the church at Corinth were uh, heading toward, neglecting their gift and their calling because they deemed it to be insignificant. But again, no gifting and no calling of God upon our lives is at all insignificant. And what we have been called to, we're required to be faithful to. However we esteem it or however the world esteems it or Christians esteem it. Otherwise, we're going to waste our opportunity to hear Jesus say, well done, and we'll have frittered away our lives under the influence and worse than that, under the lie of believing that what God has called me to do is insignificant and it really doesn't matter. God has chosen our place and it is perfect for us if we just would take our eyes off of all of these other things that we think are more better or that we want or more highly esteemed by Christian culture at the moment or whatever it might be and just put ourselves, take our eyes off of all of that and just commit ourselves to what God has called us to and we will discover that we are perfectly suited to that calling. God has chosen it with tremendous wisdom. Now, this whole thing of insignificance and inferiority, um, it is a, 
It, it looks like humility, but it isn't. It's actually pride and, and self-centeredness and rebellion related to God's call and his purposes. That's all just trying to come off as humility. And so if that's something that you're plagued with or I'm plagued with here this morning as a Christian, we just say, away with it. Just let it wash completely away from our lives. I know what the calling is of God upon my life. I'm going to give myself 100% to that and expect God uh, to make much of it. And I know uh, that he will. And then to get busy about that calling. Now, the second group of people, uh, second group of wrong attitude people in the church at Corinth. They're spoken about in verses 21 through 27. And these are the Christians that are operating out of a sense of superiority over other Christians because of God's call upon their life or because of the gift that God has uh, given to them. And the attitude of this person, perfectly encapsulated by Paul in a phrase that's repeated twice in verse 21, you notice it, and the, the attitude that, it, it, that is encapsulated in the phrase, I have no need of you. Imagine that. Imagine that. Someone in the body of Christ looking at another Christian and saying, I have no need of you. And yet it was happening in the church at Corinth. And this kind of person overvalues their calling and their gifting in the body of Christ and in a local church, and they undervalue the gifts and the callings of others. And they're a pretty easy kind of person to spot. And so here you have the temptation. Here you have the self-deception on the part of those who, potentially on the part of those who possess more public gifts within a local church or within the body of Christ, those who are prophets or they are pastors or they are teachers. Those are prominent public kind of positions. They aren't um, feet positions. They're not hidden away. They are candidly public positions. And Paul's answer to this group who thinks that they're better and more important than others based upon God's calling and his gifting, he tells them, first in verse 22, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. In other words, he tells this group of people that are lifted up in their arrogance and in their pride that every single part of the body of Christ is necessary, whether we realize it or not. And and everyone who gets lifted up in pride related to a gifting, God will teach them sooner or later, teach us, that... Every part is necessary, and there are no independent lone rangers. You know, we rise and fall together, not on, on, on an individual uh, basis. And you say, well, how in the world is every part of the body of Christ necessary, whether we realize it or not? Well, it's necessary in expressing the life and the nature of Jesus in this world. That's how it's necessary. No one person, no one Christian in a local church or in the body of Christ can in and of him and herself fully represent Jesus in his fullness to the world. I represent some aspect of him. You represent another aspect of him. 
but it takes all of the Christians in the whole wide world being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, called to something by the Holy Spirit, and gifted by the Holy Spirit for us to even have a remote chance of demonstrating and expressing the life of Christ to the whole wide world. That's how great the life is. We're talking about tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of Christians in the world today, and to realize it takes all of us to be able to communicate the beauty and the depth and the majesty of that life. No one can do that alone, no matter how gifted they are. It takes every single one of us in order to accomplish that. In verses 23 and 24... Paul makes the point that just as we give special attention to dressing the unseen parts of our bodies, we take special care of those parts of our bodies, and so we should do to those who are called to serve the Lord in quieter and unseen areas uh, within a church. In other words, that the hands and the eyes and the ears of the body, they're unclothed, they're seen all of the time. But what good would those unseen, the unclothed parts be without the parts of the body that are typically clothed and hidden? What good are hands and eyes and ears and, and a head and all of this without a liver and without lungs and without the heart and without kidneys? The other parts of the body couldn't function without those parts functioning quietly and sometimes quite anonymously, apart from having the Lord's uh, full attention. We can, no part can function uh, without these other parts. The hands, the ears, the eyes can only function as these other parts of the body are functioning and as people are fulfilling their calling. And everywhere in life you see this truth illustrated, that people especially protect what is most valuable to them in terms of their body. I used to work for the phone company, and for part of that time I worked as a lineman. It was required that linemen would wear steel-toed boots. Why? Because even though your toes are unseen... If a pole falls on them, uh, they will hoit. And that toe will announce continually to the rest of the body how dissatisfied it is with its condition. It is an unseen part of the body, but the whole body is affected by uh, all of that. And that toe will... Uh, keep the rest of the body up at night in order to share their pain with it. Think about ancient warfare where they would develop these armor in order to protect soldiers that would be going out into battle. And there would always be the armor around the torso, around the vital organs. And there was the recognition that I can lose an eye, I can lose an ear, I can lose a hand, I can even lose an arm or a leg in battle and live but I cannot have my heart pierced or have a mortal wound occur to one of these vital organs. And so there were the breastplate. There's the recognition that the unseen part is the more important part in a body. 
And we see it today with law enforcement and our military and the bulletproof vests and the Kevlar and all of these kind of things that are, are worn because there's that recognition. I am going out to do this. I could be shot in the leg, shot in the arm. It wouldn't be pleasant, but I could survive a wound like that. I cannot survive a wound that hits a vital organ within the body. There's a legendary coach, basketball coach. It is March Madness, right? Named John Wooden. He was a coach at UCLA. You have no idea how hard it is for me to use a Southern California school as an illustration <laughs> for anything. He was a Northern California boy, but he was something, and he is a believer. And he was a tremendous coach, not just a basketball coach, but a mentor of men. The respect he has of his former players... Just immense. And he won so many championships. And he kind of could had the cream of the crop. He, any athlete almost that he wanted, uh, he could get the 12 best in the United States year in and year out to come to UCLA. And they won championship after championship there. And he bring in these astonishing athletes. They had played, by the time you're on a college level and you can play basketball that well, you have played an innumerable number of hours of basketball on playgrounds and anywhere you can find a game. I mean, these guys know how to play basketball on that kind of a level. He would bring them in before the very first practice, and you know the very first thing he would teach them? How to get the maximum extension of their body on their jump shot? No. How to develop a hook shot? No. He taught them, every single one of them, how to put their socks on. So that they would not ever develop a blister because they had put a sock on wrong. Because he knew that no matter how great you are, how quick you are, how great a shot you have, if you develop blisters because you are putting your socks on wrong and not attending to your feet, you will become half the player you would otherwise be. And here's that recognition of the importance of the unseen part, how dependent the seen part is upon the part that is un. Uh, scene. The group, this group within a church that has a sense of superiority needs to recognize that no one, no matter how prominent their calling or how great their spiritual gift is greater than any other part of the body of Christ. And to remember that the most important parts of the body of Christ may be those who don't have a visible position in the church. And that's the truth. And he speaks about it in verse 22 and verse 24. And I'm completely convinced of that fact as a person who probably has a pretty prominent position within this church. Sometimes people can look at the pastor of a church and and think, well, boy, the position of a pastor would be the most difficult position for God to replace. But it isn't. He does it all of the time. 
And then people marvel when a church not only survives the change, but then it goes on to continue and even to thrive. And why does a church survive something like that? Why does it thrive after something like that? Because of all of the unseen parts, the parts that appear insignificant by comparison. And in that church, through a change like that, they just keep doing their thing in the church, loving people, serving people, calling people, ministering one-on-one, just quietly and humbly exerting their very considerable influence within the church. And then the church holds. The church continues. There's no movement. And what is it a testimony to? It is a testimony to the power and the importance of the unseen part of the body of Christ in any church. The importance of that. And candidly, those kinds of people, to use his illustration here, constitute the real guts of the church, the real vital organs of the church. And all of this can be very, very humbling to those who are called to more visible places of service within a church. But it's always good to be humbled and to remain humble. It is a folly for any part of the body to look at any other part of the body and think, I don't need you. And Paul's final thing that he says to this particular group of Christians in that category is found in verse 26. And he reminds them, if one member of the body body of Christ suffers, we all suffer, just like that big toe. We are all adversely affected as a result. And if one member is honored, then that's a cause for joy in all Christians. And thus, it is a very healthy church, and it is a very wise church that cares for one another and honors and respects equally all gifting and all calling within the body, realizing that each part really, really is necessary. And to realize that we all rise together, we all fall together. The famous words of the three musketeers, there really needs to be a spirit within a local church, that it's all for one and one for all. And that's what Paul is calling the church to do here at Corinth. The times there are changing all around us, the nation that we live in. The nation we revere very highly what we would call a a rugged individualism or spirit of independence. It's nurtured in our culture. It's desired in our culture. It is still the waning. It is still rewarded within our culture. And in many respects... Those are commendable traits. You can make a great nation built upon traits like that. 
But I think that a time has come for us as Christians in the United States to ask ourselves if that is the church culture that we read about in the Bible and to ask ourselves to what degree maybe we've allowed our culture to invade and and define our church culture. That's what happened in Corinth. And do we relate to one another as Christians? Do we value one another as Christians based upon the standard of the Word of God or based upon the standards of the world? And do we esteem other Christians valuable or less valuable based upon their gifting and upon their calling in the same way that our culture feels free to establish a person's value based upon his or her education or their job position or the neighborhood that they live in or the income level that they have or the car that they drive or how they look and all of this kind of thing? rather than to realize that the kingdom of God operates in a very completely different way and it is not a comparing with one another or competing with one another, but realizing that we are all in this thing called the body of Christ together. We will all rise together we will either, or we will fall together. And for that reason, we need to, in the words of verse 25, really care for one another. And one of the great things that has happened in the years, 30 years that I've been a pastor in our community and beyond, this whole fighting between denominations and non-denominations and all of this, Christians have in large part thrown off all of that nonsense of looking at other sections of the body of Christ as something that we're fighting against and rather than wanting every part of it to be healthy. But there needs to be continued progress related to that right down into the local church and how we view one another, how we treat one another, how things are rewarded and, and how we esteem one another in terms of gifting. And I think that for us as Christians in the United States of America, we live at a time where we really need to examine whether our Christianity is some hybrid of the Bible and the culture or whether the Christianity that we're living or the Christianity that we're experiencing in a local church is the Christianity that's described in the Bible. In Corinth, they were living a hybrid of it was part what the Bible said and then it was all these influences of the world came in and started to dominate it until very few people in the church at Corinth, they were going to live and die and no one was going to experience authentic Christianity as it's described in the Bible. And we run the same risk today as Christians. It's so important now And it's going to become more important than you and I can even begin to grasp or believe that our Christian experience individually with God and who and what we are as a local church in this community is completely defined by this book because it is only that Christianity that is going to survive and more than survive, thrive and do great things for God. The tide is turning in our nation morally and spiritually, and it's a strong tide. Things are, 
things have turned backwards and very quickly. And the tide is, is very, very, very strong. And our forefathers in recent generations lived in this nation, the United States of America, where morally and spiritually its underpinnings of what it was morally and spiritually came from the Bible. There were no big arguments about right and wrong and good and bad and what was sin and what wasn't. People accepted the Bible for that. And that was the real cause for prosperity within the nation. But now that's all up for grabs now. Now everybody's smarter than God. And maybe you could be a certain kind of Christian in past generations in the United States of America and you could live some kind of a hybrid Christianity, part the Christianity within the Bible and then part what is out in the culture and all of that because the underpinnings of the culture were largely Christian. It didn't really matter one way or another for your survival. But that's all changing now. There's the strong move, and it's a beginning. It is a beginning of a persecution that has started and it's going to continue against Christians in order to marginalize us and in order to demoralize us and in order to eliminate our influence and God's influence through us within the culture. Sometimes you, you listen to the radio or something. Like, How come it's always the Christians? Why don't they attack the Muslims? Why don't they attack the Jews? Why don't they attack the Buddhists? Why don't they attack? They know where the life is. They know where the reality is. The devil knows what the obstacle is. The devil knows what the body of Christ is. The devil knows where the power is. So, of course, we're going to be the ones that are going to get attacked in this way. And we're going to need each other in a way that we've never needed each other before. You might have read in the news here recently where this bakery here, two Christians, and this is just small examples of what's happening everywhere. Christian couple, they own a bakery. They love the Lord. They come in and they want, the homosexual couple wants them to make the wedding cake. And they can't, they can't find it in themselves to put Two grooms on the top of the cake. Or two brides on the top of the cake. It's a violation of their relationship with God. The only thing that matters in this life. And yet the whole system, the whole whatever, moving from a demand for tolerance. Now they want acceptance. And, and they want acceptance even if they're going to steal from you your religious convictions, which are the most important convictions a person can hold in life. It's just the beginning. This case that's before the Supreme Court now, this Hobby Lobby, and they come and they take it and they say, no, this Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act takes and it forces me to provide contraception for my employees. And some of that contraception is essentially the producing of an abortion in a person's I cannot do that. I can't do that before God. And thankfully they have a Supreme Court and there are some checks and balances within the country to appeal to. 
But it's the push, it's the push, and it's not just special interest groups, it's the government that's pushing. And we're going to need each other like we can't even believe that we're going to need each other. And we're going to need every single Christian operating in the place of calling and gifting all around the world and in these United States. And none of it scares me. None of it makes me frightened. Because I look at the Bible and I know that I am not yet experiencing fully what Christ paid for in his blood upon the cross and in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, what's on those pages. And I know that within me I will live miles away from that life unless I am forced into it. And the changes will force us into it. And it will be a good thing. And it will be a glorious thing. Making the body of Christ more beautiful and more distinctive than maybe it ever has been in a long time in the United States of America. But how we view each other, how we see each other, so important to operate in our gifting. No more this Christianity where I assemble together with the saints if and when I want to, if it isn't an inconvenience. And then when I do go to church or I go to the home Bible study or whatever it is, I then leave and I criticize everything that I saw and everything that I heard in the same way that I would criticize a department store or a restaurant. All that stuff's got to go by the wayside. This beautiful picture of the body of Christ, every part necessary, every part needed, not only for what God wants to do, but needed in our own lives. It's a powerful passage. It's an important passage. It is a truth and a reality, as is the case with all of the Bible, that we are going to be pushed into and where we will need to live in order to survive spiritually and thrive the way that God wants us to. I'm very much, for me as an individual person and very much as a pastor in this church, looking like never before, and I always have, looking at the Scripture and saying, what does real Christianity look like from this book as opposed to what is all around us and in some cases is being foisted upon us. This is where we'll be safe. This is where joy and peace and meaning and blessing is found. Praise the Lord for this passage. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we pray that you would use this time in your word produce within us the Holy Spirit equivalent of all for one and one for all and this little work of your Spirit called Calvary Chapel of Modesto. Thank you for every gifting. Thank you for every calling. Thank you for your 
firm but needed rebuke toward any sense of insignificance or an inferiority today, but also your needed and firm rebuke of any sense of superiority. You see, our lives, we just want to be as a church and as individual Christians what you want us to be and what we're supposed to be. We thank you for the part that this passage plays in all of that. And we trust you, Lord, to continue to take us into that glorious place. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.